Father, we thank you for that simple, beautiful truth we get to sing that you are good. To be reminded that we don't gather here this morning on the merits of our own goodness, but we gather here this morning through the perfect goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's only because of his goodness that we can boldly come into your presence, not as slaves and as servants, but as sons and daughters. Father, we thank you that in your goodness, you from eternity past, you saw us in our brokenness, in our bondage, in our depravity, and for no other reason, not because of our goodness, not because of our perfection, but because of your goodness and because of your perfection, you called us by name and you chose us. You've gathered us to yourself and made us your own. So, Father, would those simple gospel truths once again resonate in our hearts this morning? This, this message that so many of us have heard so many times before, Father, would it fall fresh on our ears and our hearts once again today? That you would be seen through your word as beautiful and good. So, Father, sanctify us this morning in the truth of your word. Edify your church, glorify your name through the truth that you have perfectly revealed to us through your word. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen. Well, you can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you're finding your seats this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. And uh, if you're joining us here for the first time today, uh, we, for the last couple weeks, have been in a message series called Devoted, where we are studying the movements of the early church in Acts chapter 2. And last week, we spent our time together in verses 1 through 41, where we saw Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And we saw that uh, God pours out supernatural awakening through the prayers of his people, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the preaching of the gospel. Now, we were uh, careful to make sure we understood that God Uh, Through our prayers, our prayers do not force his hand or bring awakening, and yet we can study God's word through scripture. We can study uh, the track and movement of church history and know that God has never brought revival. He's never brought awakening through a people who were not serious about prayer and repentance and the preaching of the gospel. And we saw that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. And then for the next few weeks, we want to build upon that foundation. So uh, for today and the next two weeks, weeks, we're going to be right here in verses 42 through 47. And and each week we're going to take a different angle uh, of looking at the movements of the early church as we study God's word together. So uh, two weeks ago, Nate Aiken was here from the Pillar Network, and Nate actually led us through this text. And uh, what he did that day was really give us a picture of the church from about 10,000 feet up. And what we saw of the early church is that they were devoted to the gospel, they were devoted to the Bible, they were devoted to the church, to each other, and to multiplication. And through that message, we saw God's plan for the church globally, uh, but we've also seen over the last couple of weeks that this is his plan for each local church specifically. So uh, we have a very unique opportunity being in Beaufort, South Carolina, and being a predominantly military community. Because the reason this is for us an opportunity is literally about every 18 months, a third of our church family changes over. So under normal circumstances, about every 18 months, we send uh, roughly 150 to 200 people literally all over the world. And as challenging as that can be, we want to look at this as positively as we can and believe that God has uniquely positioned us as a church body in this community to faithfully fulfill the great commission of advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth because every 18 months, we are literally sending people to the ends of the earth. 
And so one of the ways that we really want to foster uh, living out that mission is by instilling within our congregation biblical truths and values that are portable regardless of where you live. So this means for us as a church family, we've embraced a very simple mission statement that says this, we exist to preach the gospel and make disciples. Because that's not just true in Beaufort, South Carolina. That is true regardless of where you go. That's a portable truth that can be lived in at the four corners of the earth. So regardless of where the Lord sends you, this is our calling, not just as cross-community church, but as the church to be people who are preaching the gospel and making disciples. So earlier this year, back in January, you could go online and find this. We taught through the Great Commission for six weeks and God's plan for preaching the gospel and making disciples to the ends of the earth. And what we want to do here today and the next couple of weeks in verses 42 and 40 is see our vision for how to fulfill that mission. And we're going to see today and, and over the next couple of weeks, and this is what we've embraced as a church family, is to simply be a people who gather, grow, give, and go. So, so what we're going to do today, the very simple, central truth that we're going to see revealed in verses 42 through 47, those of you following along in your notes, is that gospel communities gather Gospel communities gather together. The, the New Testament word for church, ecclesia, it simply means assembly. And, and this may come as a shock to many of us this morning, but the defining characteristic and trait of assemblies is that they assemble. They get together and they come together. We are called to gather. The word church means assembly. And so we most fundamentally live out our identity as followers of Jesus Christ by gathering together. Now, I couldn't help but feel this over the last couple of weeks, a little bit of attention, because as I'm preparing for this message, now, this is a, a really unique time to be talking about worship gatherings. I mean, for the first time in over 100 years in our country, the church, in many ways, is being prohibited from meeting or is at least having to meet in significantly modified capacities. Even today, as we gather in a modified capacity, there's many uh, churches for various reasons that are having to remain closed and have, have not been able to regather uh, in, in this uh, immediate time. And, and there's a lot of variables that go into that conversation. You know, for us, We've obviously gotten to the place where we feel that there's a safe way to do it to the best of our capacity facing uh, the restrictions that we're currently facing. And we understand that, man, this is a season where there's going to be many who simply cannot gather. Either they're high risk because of coronavirus or worried that they might be or they have family members that, that are or uh, they currently have it and we're glad they stayed home this morning, right? Like didn't spread that to everybody else or uh, they've got a job that they simply cannot afford to test positive so they have to be, uh, take serious precautions and, and, and there's just many who are simply prevented from being here today who want to be here, who desire to be here, but this, the current circumstances prevent them from being here. There's many who wanted to be here this morning but couldn't because registration was full. You know, talk about my least favorite time of the week right now. It's about Saturday at noon. And the reason why it's about my least favorite time of the week is because over the last five or six weeks, that's about the time that registration for our services becomes full. It drives me crazy. It makes us so upset that we, we have people who want to gather with us but can't because we're having to operate under restrictions right now. So the challenges of 2020 have, have forced churches all across our cultural context, all across the globe, to make some rapid adjustments. And many of these adjustments have been positive, but I fear that a lot of the changes we've experienced this year, combined with some very unhealthy and unbiblical cultural understandings of church that have developed over the last 15 to 20 years, have led many followers of Jesus to embrace convictions regarding the gathering of believers that simply do not align with God's word. And so this is what I hope to do during our time together this morning. We're going to take a glimpse here, take a good look at the earliest followers of Jesus and the simplicity of their gatherings. 
What did they do when they gathered together? What did this look like? And along the way, I want to answer some very critical questions. So what exactly constitutes a Christian worship gathering? What exactly constitutes a Christian church? Isn't church just wherever two or three people are gathered, we hear it said in our cultural context? How often should Christians gather together? What should we be doing when we gather together? And why all of the fuss and debate about churches returning to buildings in the year 2020? All of these are questions that I hope that we can clear up today. So again, last week we saw that the church was born through prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, that the gospel is uh, the most fundamental aspect of the church, it's the foundation of the church, is the clear proclamation of the gospel. And today we're going to build upon that foundation to see that gospel communities gather. So uh, let's return our attention. This was read for us earlier, uh, but return our attention to Acts 2, and we'll read again uh, verses 42 through 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. Everyone say together. And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, everyone say day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, everyone say day by day, day by day, those who were being saved. So we see first from this passage this morning that gospel communities gather corporately. Gospel communities gather corporately. We saw last week in Acts 2-1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And in one single cataclysmic moment, the church exploded from 120 believers who were gathered together in a room to 3,000 people. In that one fell swoop, the church went from being a house church to a mega church, and all of those who were gathered together were devoted. I think the New American Standard best translates this passage to say that they were continually devoting themselves. It's this active sense of the language that emphasizes they were giving constant and careful attention to several things. And from verse 42, these are the things they were giving their attention to. They were devoting themselves first to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles had followed Jesus around for three years, had been discipled by Jesus. They followed him again for another 40 days following his resurrection. And now they are passing on his teachings to these new disciples. It says next they were devoted to the fellowship. Now next week, I'm going to preach almost an entire sermon on that word, the, because it's so critically important to see this is one of our earliest evidences of church membership in the New Testament, not just fellowship as a concept, but as a construct. But the word fellowship, koinonia for the Greek, it simply means uh, that it was a, a life of continual participation and sharing. So we need to understand of the early church, y'all, that this was a whole lot more than coming together for service and Sunday brunch. I mean, they lived lives together that overflowed out of their worship together day in and day out in the temple and in their homes. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Can everyone say amen? Is, do you guys not like food? I mean, is that like the early Christians, they were devoted to, to eating. That's a great thing to be devoted to, right? Like they would come together around each other's tables uh, for food. This is uh, both full shared meals together, and uh, this was also participation uh, in the Lord's Supper. And last, they were devoted to prayer. The first followers of Jesus Christ were fervent and constant in prayer. And it's these four basic components of teaching, fellowship, prayer, and communion. These serve as our template for what should happen when we gather together corporately. 
It's through these basic ordinary means, through the preaching of God's word, through fellowship that both initiates new relationship and culminates our interactions during the week. We get together, there's preaching of the word, there's fellowship, there's prayer, there's communion. We all know know elsewhere from the New Testament that there was also singing. We see this in Ephesians 5, that our singing over one another glorifies God and edifies and encourages and builds up one another. And it's through these simple, basic, ordinary means as we gather together that God shapes and forms his people. We are called to gather. We are called to gather. This is the picture we see of the early church is that they were gathering together daily. It was consistent. It was frequent. They were devoted to this gathering. And so much of what's happened in 2020, as if we were not already lax enough in our understanding of gatherings, the events of the last several months, I fear, have have caused many professing followers of Jesus to formulate some very unhealthy and unbiblical convictions regarding what it means for Christians to gather. You know, one uh, story of of churches gathering that's made uh, national headlines over the last few weeks in particular from more of a a high-profile individual, this is uh, John MacArthur's church, Grace Community, out in Los Angeles. And, you know, as the story goes, they had uh, been meeting uh, just online the way many uh, churches had been doing, the way we had been doing initially, and then folks slowly started to come back to their gatherings, and uh, they faced some threats from the city of Los Angeles. They they basically said, hey, uh, we we went from recommendation at first, and they weren't adhering to those recommendations, and they, they basically came at them and said, listen, if you gather together, we'll cut off your utilities. They were threatening fines. They were threatening arrests. And the church basically made the statement that said, listen, uh, gathering together for worship as much a constitutional right as protesting, and so we're going to gather together. John MacArthur, actually a couple weeks ago, just kind of tongue-in-cheek, he, he gave his congregation a welcome where he welcomed them to the, uh, to the Grace Community Church peaceful protest, because uh, that apparently makes it okay for these gatherings to happen. Their point was very simply, listen, if protesting is constitutional, which, hey, I'm all for that. I think that's great. That's a constitutional right. But so is gathering together for worship. Now, we could debate all day long about whether churches should or should not be gathering full tilt. Because we as a church, back in the spring, we made the good faith decision to cooperate within the guidelines and the recommendations that were being communicated to us. And so it's one thing, though, for the church to to listen to the government in terms of what we should and should not do. But church, when the government begins to dictate what we can and cannot do, that's where we draw the line. We have to be very, very careful. And listen, I know there's going to be many who are going to accuse me of just falsely crying persecution this morning. But friends, one of my big concerns of the last several months is I've watched way too many followers of Jesus become uncritically compliant with restrictions and regulations of our government. I mean, what about when we do face actual persecution? I mean, are we going to bow out that quickly? We're going to become compliant that quickly? Again, we can talk all day long, should we or shouldn't we, but when we begin to compromise in the face of what we can and cannot do, this is where we have to be very, very careful. Church, we are called to gather. We are given a biblical mandate as followers of Jesus Christ to gather, and this is fundamental to our DNA and to our identity as followers of Christ. The church means assembly, and assemblies assemble. We come together. This is fundamental to our identity. Let's read verses 46 through 47. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that gospel communities gather together corporately, and we see, second, that gospel communities gather frequently. So we're actually going to spend the rest of our time together on this second point, and we're going to flesh this out in a few different ways here in just a moment. They continually devoted themselves to the gathering. 
to this assembly of believers. It says that day by day, they attended the temple together and broke bread in their homes. And this really should serve as our model for the church. It's not just that we gather together corporately on Sunday. One of the ways that we try to live this out is by encouraging you to participate in community groups. So extending the fellowship of, uh, that starts here into the, the walls of our homes as we continually come together around God's word. We're going to focus on that next week. But, but I, I think, man, the, the picture that God designed and intends in his scripture here, it's so much more even than these structured environments. Our fellowship should, should look like a lot of morning coffees together. It should look like lunches in the middle of the week together. It should look like dinner in each other's homes. It should look like days at the beach together. It might even look like vacations together. But what we do see in, in the New Testament is, is a far cry from what we see in our very Western, self-sufficient, individualist society where we kind of punch in and punch out a couple times a week in a couple different environments and call that church. And that's not what God designed here. It was a continued, unbroken fellowship. The world around them saw them gathering publicly in the temple. They saw them gathering together privately in their homes. They saw this ongoing, unbroken fellowship throughout the course of the week. They saw a contagious love from the outside that made them say, I want to be a part of that. And I have to wonder, could it be that the reason why a lost and dying world in the 21st century is struggling to connect with the church is because the church over the last 20 years has struggled to connect with itself? We have so made a low priority of what it means to gather together. Fifteen years ago, regular church attendance in our culture was considered twice a week. Now it's considered about one and a half or twice a month. This is not what God designs for his people. We are called to gather and we're called to gather together frequently. Again, by necessity, this year, assembling together has looked different. For some, this is just not a reality right now, and they should not feel guilt for that, shouldn't feel shame for that. But understand, there is a huge difference between the professing follower of Jesus who cannot gather and the professing follower of Jesus who will not gather. There's a very, very big difference. There are some who are simply just being prevented, and then there are some who are willfully choosing not to participate in the assembly of believers. And I want us to see that that is not God's desire for us as individual followers of Jesus. So um, here's what we're going to do for the next several minutes. I want to address a mantra, a misconception, and a misapplication that I believe have led many followers of Jesus to develop and adopt an understanding of the gathering and an understanding of the church that is neither healthy or biblical. And so we're just going to look at a few passages of Scripture to see God's good and perfect design. And many of these are very well-intentioned, but I want us to see today that they fall short of God's ideal. So first I want to address a mantra. A mantra that, if left unchecked, can lead to a very unhealthy and unbiblical understanding of the church. The mantra is this, the church is not a building. Now listen, this statement is factually correct. This is a factually true statement. Nowhere in the entire New Testament does the word church refer to a facility. The church is called the bride of Christ. The church is called the body of Christ. The church is never called the building of Christ. It's, it's never once referred to as a building. You've heard us say it here many times before that the church is not a place, the church is people. The statement is factually true, and yet as a very uh, pithy, catchy, uh, one-liner without a whole lot of nuance, if we leave that unchecked, it can lead to some deep misunderstandings. And in 2020, I think there's a number of professing Christians who have taken this to a very unhealthy extreme. And so if you're following your notes, I put this in today because I think this is such an important nuance for us to understand. While the church is certainly more than a building, the church is not less than the gathering. 
The church is more than a building, but the church is not less than the gathering. Assemblies assemble. This is fundamental to our identity. That is what the word church means. We are called to assemble with one another. Gathering together is fundamental to our DNA and identity as followers of Christ. And now listen, we see it as a church body every single week because we don't have our own facility. We're grateful that we get to gather together here for worship every single week, but we know firsthand it does not require a brick and mortar to be the body of Christ. For the followers of Jesus, the building might be optional, but we have to understand that the gathering is not. We don't need the building to be functioning as a body of Christ, but we absolutely must gather and assemble. This is fundamental to our identity. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. This is our strongest admonition from the New Testament to participate in this gathering, to, to encourage the gathering of believers. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now pay attention here. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. Everyone say all the more. All the more as you see the day drawing near. So not only do we gather together regularly, we should do it with increasing frequency as we draw nearer to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, like many of you, I grew up in a, in a fairly traditional church environment where we, we had multiple worship gatherings throughout the course of the week. So we would gather together for worship on Sunday morning, uh, and then we'd have uh, back in the evening, a shorter worship gathering together in the evening, and then we would have midweek prayer on Wednesday night. I'm just curious by show of hands this morning, uh, how many of you either grew up in a church context like that or you have spent time in a church context like that at some point in time? So the vast majority of us in this room, this is the same with the first service this morning as well. And uh, I remember about 15, 16 years ago, I was serving my first church internship ever. This was my home church up in Western North Carolina. And uh, I was about 17 at the time, so I knew a whole lot more uh, back then than I do now. And um, I was a part uh, of a discussion one day. There were about 15, 20 leaders of our church family who were talking about whether or not we needed to stick with a Sunday night worship gathering. And so the group was split about 50-50. There were some who were saying, uh, no, we, we need to be doing this. This is important. Uh, scripture says we should gather all the more as we see the day drawing near. They just pointed to the fact that our Wednesday night was becoming a lot less attended. And they said, they really felt like, man, if we get rid of Sunday morning, it's, it's really going to cut into our fellowship as a church. And they also felt like it just led to a very slippery slope where, where over the next years, over the next decade or so, people would become much more irregular even with Sunday mornings. And I was on the opposite end of that spectrum. I can say at 17, most of it was that I just didn't want to come back on Sunday night. I wanted to go hang out with my friends. But I, I, in my heart, was just feeling like, man, you guys are a bunch of legalists. You're a bunch of Pharisees. You're just married to tradition. You're just doing this because you just want to do this. And I actually made the very bold prediction at 17 years old that not only would Sunday morning not suffer, we would actually see it grow because we weren't pulling people in as many directions. A couple years later, I went off to Bible college, and I uh, did a group project where we were talking about churches that were still clinging to a Sunday night worship gathering. I got an A on this project critiquing churches that were still clinging to this, and I talked about how it was a relic of the past and how it was an obstacle that was preventing us from fulfilling our mission. And I'm happy to report to you 10, 15 years later on both accounts, church, that I was dead wrong. I was so wrong. Over the last 15 years, we have seen such a sharp decline in church attendance and participation in the gathering, unlike anything we have seen. 
It has become so much more commonplace for professing followers of Jesus to see the worship gathering as an optional add-on that we might do if there's nothing else going on throughout the course of the week rather than the preeminent priority around which we shape the rest of our week. And the picture we see here in Acts 2 was day by day. The picture we see in Hebrews 10 is all the more as we see the day drawing near. The biblical mandate is to gather all the more, but unfortunately we're in a part of a cultural moment right now where the movement is to gather all the less. And we just have to ask ourselves, I think very honestly, does that align with God's word? Does it align with God's word that we wake up on Sunday morning and flip a coin about whether we're showing up that day? Again, this is a unique season. This is different. But under normal circumstance, I think we have to have honest evaluation of our hearts and ask, how much do I truly prioritize this assembly, this design that God has put together for his church to come together in worship? Now, many times people hide behind this mantra. Listen, the, the church isn't a building. Like, well, what, what's, what's all the fuss about everybody regathering and coming back together? The church is not a building. And they're right. It, it's, it's so true. We've seen it together from Scripture. The church is not a building. But listen, the church is a body, and the command for the body is to gather. It's to assemble. You know, I, just, I, I think so many of us forget, you know, not everybody over these last six months in particular, not everyone has family members with them in their isolation. Not everybody has neighbors that they can self-quarantine with throughout the course of the week. There are so many who have suffered for the last six months. Because typically, this Sunday morning, this one hour in the short time they get with their community group during the course of the week, for many folks, even within our own congregation and in our world, that's their one or two weekly reminders that they are not alone. That they're not by themselves. Now, I think back to a couple of years ago. There's a brother who joined us on a Sunday morning. He was a young Marine guy. And two nights before, he sat in his car in a parking lot, and he put a gun to his head, and he was ready to end his life. And something sparked his heart. Something compelled him. He'd worshiped with us once before, several months before. Something compelled him to gather with us that day. And he came through the door that morning, and he was welcome. And after the end of the morning, he went and sat with a member of our prayer team. And he was prayed for, and he was encouraged. And we were able to connect him to help and to resources to get him back into a stable place. And by the grace of God today, he's, he's moved on. He's at his next duty station now, but he's growing. He's thriving. He's connected to a local church. And he came to us that morning. He said, being here today saved me my life is that because I came through this door and the Lord reminded me that I was not alone, that I'm not carrying the burdens of my life alone. So church, understand, before you dismissively push away the importance of gathering together, remember that what might feel optional to you feels like survival for others. We are not wired to do this in isolation. We are the body of Christ, and as the assembly, as the church, we have a responsibility to assemble. The church is more than the building, but it is definitely not less than the gathering. This, this uh, mantra often leads to a misconception, and here's the misconception. The early church didn't meet in buildings because the church isn't a building. They met in homes. Now, I've got to be honest, this to me is one of the more puzzling statements I hear on a regular basis because a simple reading of the first few chapters of the book of Acts shows us that this really just isn't true. I mean, we, I'm not playing games with the scripture here. This is just verse 46. It says, day by day, attending the temple together. Like the temple wasn't somebody's house. Like they came to this public place, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So it wasn't an either or, it was a both and. And they weren't just attending the temple together weekly, they were attending together daily. And this isn't even an isolated incident unique to Acts 2. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. 
So go back to Acts chapter 2, the beginning of it. Last week we saw there's 120 people gathered together in an upper room. Now this is roughly the size of most congregations today, and just to help us scale this a little bit this morning, there's about 70 people in this room. That's the max that we're allowed to put in this room on a weekly basis right now. And and that takes a pretty good-sized room to be able to comfortably accommodate 70 people. This was 120. So, man, even if this was somebody's house, like, y'all, somebody had a pad. Like, I don't know about you, but my living room seat's like 10, maybe, and that's not comfortable. I mean, that's us like pulling out the kitchen chairs and everything and, and you know, people sitting on the counter and stuff like that. This was a very, very big room. So even if it was somebody's house, it was large enough to accommodate uh, a lot of people at once. And then by the end of Acts 2, we see that 3,000 are saved. They're attending uh, the temple and gathering in homes together daily. Then uh, Acts 4.4, we see that that number had grown to 5,000. Then in Acts 5.12, we're told that they're gathering together in Solomon's portico. This place was massive. This structure was over 900 feet long. It's like the deck of an aircraft carrier. And they're all gathering together out there. The church is gathering together, having fellowship. There's preaching of the word. It's open-air evangelism. Jesus taught here as well. And then we see by Acts 5.42 that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So yes, the earliest Christians did meet in homes, but they also met in large public facilities like temples and synagogues. And part of the reason why the fellowship grew so rapidly is because they had public places like the temple where they could frequently together gather, that they could come together and gather, and the outside world was able to see this and quickly be invited into this fellowship. So again, is the building necessary? Absolutely not. But is it an effective tool that helps us much more effectively fulfill the mission? Absolutely yes. It's true for the early church, it's true for us today. Again, one of the main reasons why we as a church right now, we're currently engaged in a capital campaign. We're seeking property for a permanent home. Listen, there's plenty of practical reasons for that, about why we believe it's the best stewardship of our resources and of our time and of our energy. Lots of practical reasons. You know the main spiritual component why we should desire to have our own place of worship? is because we want to be more faithful to Hebrews 10. We want to gather together all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. And this is what I so desperately desire for our church. It's to see this Acts chapter 2 picture in motion where we're gathering together on Sunday for worship and we're coming back frequently throughout the week for fellowship and for prayer and for worship and we're gathering together in each other's homes and the gatherings in our homes spill into continued unbroken fellowship throughout the course of the week. This is what God lays out in his word, and this is what we should desire for our church. So that's the misconception. And then this misconception oftentimes leads to a misapplication and a misinterpretation. Here's the misapplication. Church is wherever two or three are gathered. This is huge. This is so important for us to pay attention to this morning. Matthew 18.20 is probably the most misquoted and misunderstood passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. It's the passage that said, where Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so here's how that passage of Scripture that gets used. It says, well, church is, is just me and a couple of friends at home. Church is me and my Bible study group. Church is, is just me out on the boat with a couple of buddies. Now, you know, I, I had a seminary professor who used to say this, and I want to give this to you this morning because uh, it's a very helpful principle in your interpretation of Scripture. Okay, this is, this is really important. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And, and this is really just a fancy way of saying, anytime you find somebody regularly taking a little snippet of Scripture, usually it's because they're trying to drive forward some sort of unbiblical agenda. And, and there's so much irony here. 
Because this passage gets used to justify not participating in the assembly of believers. But if you read it in its context, the passage is about the assembly of the believers. And so it's so important that we not just uh, take a passage of Scripture and use it to fit our unbiblical understandings of what church is. And again, I'm not trying to play games with you here. Turn, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. I, just, I want us to read here verses uh, 15 through 20. Because as we read this passage, it becomes plainly obvious and clear what Jesus is actually talking about here. And it's abundantly clear that he is not saying, hey, church is just wherever you're with a couple of friends who are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Like, that is not at all what Jesus is saying here. Let's read this passage here together carefully. Matthew 18, 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So what Jesus is talking about here is how we, in the context of relationship, we address one another when we fall into sin. There's, there's accountability and there's exhortation. You see a brother or sister who's fallen into sin that you approach them and you say, friend, this is not God's desire for you. That this is against his word. This is uh, compromising the integrity of your witness as a follower of Jesus and the integrity of the witness of the church. And, and, and the hope is restoration. The hope is that they realize and they acknowledge their error and they turn from their sin. If they don't, this is what happens. Jesus says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So again, the person doesn't listen to you one-on-one. The hope is you bring a couple of friends and maybe they will listen to a group of people who are seeing all of this from the same angle. Verse 17, but if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, to the assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by, the, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So, so that passage of Scripture, outside of its context, it sounds like a very comforting mo- notion until you realize Jesus is actually laying out the process for potentially kicking someone out of the church. Like, we, we were in a store a couple of weeks ago, and there was a piece of artwork that had this, this passage of Scripture for where two or three are gathered, there I am. And I was like, that's a weird verse to hang in your living room. I don't know, like, unless you're having a family meeting where you might be kicking somebody out of the family. Like, that'd be a really weird passage of Scripture to hang up because that is not what Jesus is talking about. They're like hanging that verse out of context in your living room. That's a little bit like hanging a picture of your favorite president during an impeachment trial. Like somebody voting on whether or not they're going to stay in. So it's, it's amazing. If you look through the gospel accounts, Jesus only uses this word church twice. Once where he tells Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The second time is here. Where he's showing us the process for how it is we preserve the integrity of our witness and address one another as followers of Jesus Christ when we fall into sin. We have to be very, very careful with what passages of Scripture that we use. Otherwise, we're going to be using Scripture to justify very unbiblical and unhealthy understandings of what a church is. It happens so frequently. Church for me is my Bible study group. Church for me is a couple of friends out on the boat. I heard this a lot when I was a part of Campus Crusade in college. Campus Crusade, this parachurch ministry, is my church. And listen, I have nothing against parachurch ministries. As a church, we have nothing against them. What we support, especially for students, we support the work of Fellowship of Christian Athletes, of Young Life. We have a a number of folks who are engaged locally in community Bible study, and we say praise God for that. Praise God that believers are getting together outside of here. They're gathering together all the more as they see the day drawing near. But as any of the leaders of those ministries should be telling you, 
if they're not telling you, is that parachurch means alongside of and not in place of. That that is not intended to be a replacement for the fellowship of believers as part of the local church. So friends, we have to understand this morning, if the group someone is a part of, that you're a part of, if it is not led by biblically qualified pastors and elders who are shepherding people through the word of God as they administer the ordinances of baptism and of communion among a people who are overseeing and affirming one another's membership in the body of Christ, as by the power of the Holy Spirit, they live out this mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations, then what you might have is a group of friends getting together, but church, that is not a church. That's a group of Christians getting together. But biblically, that is not a church in any sense of the word. The community we're involved in, we need to reflect what God desires and has designed for us in his word. And again, while we're in a unique season, while there might be inconsistency in these gatherings, what we cannot minimize is the importance of our gathering. Assemblies assemble. This is what we've call, been called to do and, and to be. And listen, we gather together corporately and frequently because every time we gather together, it puts on display the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single time we come together, we reflect the goodness of the Lord, the God who has gathered himself to us. And this is the great thing about our Heavenly Father is He doesn't just visit on the weekends. He he is with us daily. He is with us moment by moment, day by day. So every time we gather together, we reflect that commitment to us. Listen, our gathering together here this morning is evangelism. We're coming together publicly and visibly to show the outside world that we have found something greater than what's in this world. And we're going to turn our attention, we're going to turn our eyes, we're going to turn our hearts and our minds and our affections for this moment to the praise of our Father who has saved us and ransomed us at the cost of his own son, Jesus Christ. And we've found something among the fellowship of believers that's greater than anything this world has to offer. And every single time we gather together, we put that truth on display. And every single time we choose something else, we show that Jesus has the second seat. Our gathering is evangelism. It's one of the greatest ways we display the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And and listen, I, I want us to gather day by day with each other because I want us to witness day by day those who are being saved. Don't you want to see this picture from Acts chapter 2? Like, don't you want to see this? We're, we're not just on Sunday mornings do we see people come to know Christ, but through your personal witness through your personal evangelism, through the ministry of your community group, through your interactions with other believers and ministry with other believers as you work, as you live in your neighborhood, don't you desire to see this? To see this truth lived out? This is what we see in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to close with this passage this morning. I want us to read verses 19 through 23. This is right before this picture of the assembly together. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23, it says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now watch this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Every time we pass through those doors to gather in here and worship together, every time we pass through the threshold of one another's homes to gather together for the fellowship of believers, this is inextricably connected to the gospel. 
it should remind us of how it is we boldly enter in to the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And church, this is not just a reminder that we need monthly. This is not just a reminder that we need weekly. This is a reminder that we need daily. We need this reminder moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, we come together and we are reminded of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to do this all the more as we see the day drawing near. We should increase in frequency with these gatherings. We should be finding every reason in the universe to be able to come together so that we can visibly put this truth on display. We do this all the more. We set our eyes. This turns our eyes. This turns our attention to the moment that Jesus Christ is going to return. I I just thought about this over the last couple of weeks. How amazing would it be if Jesus Christ returned while we were gathered together? Is, Is anybody else excited about that this morning? I'm just curious. Is anybody open to that idea whatsoever? Is, is anyone going to say amen to that? Like, hey, this is good news, that, that we would be together. Like, what if we, we literally went just from one moment where we, in this temporary time that we're gathered together for worship, we, we were immediately transported to the eternal moment we're going to be surrounded by the throne of Jesus Christ. We gather together every single week to be reminded of the eternity to come, and we're going to be centered around the throne room of who Jesus is. We're going to see him day and night for all eternity. We'll have eternal, unbroken fellowship with one another, with Jesus Christ. And every time we come together, it's the opportunity to put that truth on display. And so my prayer for us is that we would establish ourselves as the welcoming committee that is ready and prepared for that day. When the moment the clouds tear open and the Lord calls us and eternally gathers us to himself. That's the truth that we come around here together as a body. That's the truth that we embrace. And that's the truth that's put on visible display to a lost and dying world as we gather together. So so listen, for for some this morning, I'm praying that what's happening during the season is the Lord is just invigorating within you a new desire for the gathering. I hope you've missed it. I hope you felt the emptiness of it when when we're sitting around TV screens over the last several weeks, several months. For those who aren't able to join, I hope the Lord is kindling within you right now a renewed desire to gather, that we would once again prioritize this as a moment where we come together every single week, not just every single week, but every single day, to visibly put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ and display his glory to a lost and dying world. So, Fathers, we we close this morning. Lord, we, we thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us to gather together Lord, the opportunity you give us to visibly put on display that the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that through our gathering together, through our assembling together with one another, Lord, that you would be seen as beautiful to a watching world. That they would see this and desire to be a part of this and want to be a part of this. Lord, I pray for those who desire to be here today but simply cannot. Father, that you would comfort them by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that you would kindle within them a renewed passion and desire for this gathering, Lord, that you would create an anticipation for the day that we can all join together again. Father, for those who have forsaken this assembly, Lord, I pray for the grace of your conviction today, that you would reignite and you would rekindle a passion to gather with God's people as frequently as possible, all the more as we see the day of your returning drawing near. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Will you use it to shape us, to mold us, and to transform us as we go from this place today? We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, 
Amen.